Have you ever tried to make somebody love you? <coughs> did, it, did it work? <laughs> I don't think that's possible. I think you might be able to make some people like you if you try really hard. Some people devote their whole lives to this. My mom actually called out my own tendencies towards people pleasing and getting pe people to like me uh, early in my life. And I'd like to believe that it's helped me sort of keep those tendencies in check. And if you disagree with that, don't tell me, because I can't take that kind of feedback. <laughs> Just pretend that you like me. Um, but to make somebody actually love you uh, is impossible. Right? It's kind of a nonsensical statement. Uh, love by its nature must be freely given and freely received. It can't be coerced. It can't be wrangled. It's only love if it's a gift that's freely given. Uh, in, in the movie Bruce Almighty, Jim Carrey plays this character who gets to be God for a little bit. And there's only two rules that he's given. And one of them is that he can't tell anybody that he's God. And the other one is that he can't mess with free will. He can't force people to do things. Uh, and the one time in the movie that he tries to do that is he's trying to coerce love out of his girlfriend that they've kind of fallen on uh, apart. And he's just trying to get her to love him. And it just it doesn't, it doesn't work. He can't do it because... It's not love if it's coerced, if it's forced. You're not talking about love anymore. You're talking about something else, maybe power, perhaps, or lust, maybe, but, but, but not love. We're looking at one of the greatest verses on love, on God's love, in John 3.16, and then a few of the verses that follow it this morning. Um, and there's one man who's responsible for making this verse um, known, not known so much in the church, but kind of in pop culture. And his name is Roland Stewart. And I think we might have a picture of him up here. Maybe, maybe not. There we go. Uh, in the, in the, in the eight, 70s and 80s, uh, he, he was known as Rock and Rollin' or the Rainbow Man. And for a while, he just would show up to sporting events with the wig um, and just, he was crazy and the camera loved him. And then he, um, he had a, a conversion experience. He, he came came to faith in Christ, uh, and he felt like this platform had been given to him by God to bring people to God. And so he started bringing John 3.16 banners and strategically positioning himself in the end zone and holding the placard up uh, at just the right time. In fact, he, he would go to these games, and he, he was so on mission with what he was about. He wasn't paying attention to the game. He would bring with him a portable TV, and he would see where the camera was shooting, and he would position himself so that the most camera angles would capture him and his signs. Uh, tragically, his story does not end real well. Uh, he became, he so wanted to force people to respond to this message of God's love, um, that, and he became uh, concerned, would be maybe a mild way to put it, bothered that people weren't responding more to this message that he was, when he, Held up the sign, John 3.16. Uh, and he eventually ended up in a hotel near the Los Angeles airport with some ammunition and uh, had tried to kidnap two people to sort of use as hostages and negotiation. Uh, he wanted a press conference. That's what he wanted. He didn't really want to hurt anybody. He just wanted a press conference to get the message out. Uh, a maid ended up coming in and got freaked out and locked herself in the bathroom. Uh, and he is, he is currently, uh, no one got hurt thankfully. Um, he's currently serving three consecutive life sentences for kidnapping, threatening to shoot down airplanes, and um, a lot of things 
that don't seem to jive with the actual message of John 3.16. Right? I think this, is, this can be something that we, we, we have a disconnect sometimes, maybe not to the extent that Roland did, uh, disconnect between the message and the means, the message of God's love and, and the way in which God shows his love, shows his love to us. And John 3.16 is, is both of those things. It is a message of God's love, but it reveals something about the methods that God shows his love to us. And it also describes, as we'll see, uh, how people, how the world responds to the love of God. So we're going to read. We're going to start in verse 16, which will sound very familiar. Um, but try to listen to it. This is always the challenge with familiar verses, right? Is that we, we're like, oh, John 3.16, I know that. Try to listen with new ears. And then we're going to continue on because it's not just an isolated verse. It's part of a section here. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Would you plant it deep in our hearts and our minds this morning? May this be our food, our sustenance, our nourishment. The promise of eternal life, the gift that only you can give. The good news of your great love for this world and the free offer of forgiveness and grace and life. We love you, Lord. Speak to us this morning. Amen. This is one of the most beautiful summaries of the gospel message, the heart of the gospel, right? That God so very much loved the world, the whole world, that he sent his son on a mission, not to condemn the world, but to save the world, to bring life where there was death. The world was already condemned in its own darkness and its own sin. People loved darkness rather than light, and that's true today as it was then. But into that darkness, Jesus, God in the flesh, came as the light, as the life. And then God honors people's freedom to respond to Jesus. And I think sometimes we might wish that he wouldn't. We might wish that he would just sort of force himself <laughs> to just make people decide, everybody just respond. But, but that's not how love works, right? That's not how Freedom that God honors in us, it's not how that works. So God allows himself to be resisted, rejected. He doesn't force himself on people. 
but he invites people freely to choose him to, to respond to his love, to his initiative. Jesus does not come to condemn because the world already stands condemned. Uh, Paul writes in Romans that all have sinned, right? There's no degree of separation of sinfulness. Everyone stands condemned in sin when we're held up to God's perfection and God's holiness. Some read earlier from Isaiah about, uh, you know, come all you who are thirsty, uh, who, you, you who don't have any money, come and buy. Um, and, and morally speaking, all of us <laughs> have no money. Uh, we're all uh, empty and bankrupt there. So there's not two different kinds of people in the world. I think you might read this passage and you, you could come to that perception, but there's not two different kinds of people in the world. There's just one. All of us are in need of saving. But there are two distinct responses to Christ, to his coming into the world. One response, the response of resisting, the response of seeking out hiding in the shadows, that response leads to death, to separation from God, hell. But the other leads to life, eternal life. And this is the response that God is is longing to see his people make, his people that he loves so much that he sent his only son to go and to come and to rescue them. Uh, this passage in many ways is very descriptive, or, or simply descriptive. There, there's not a lot in the passage that is urging you to make a decision. It's just kind of describing this is, this is what reality is like. This is how great God's love is for the world. And these are descriptions of how people respond to God's love. But John does have a motivation behind this. He has a purpose in his writing. In fact, uh, he gives us a clue to the purpose of his entire gospel at the end of his gospel. He says this, I've written all these things that you would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you would have life in his name. This is the purpose. This is what motivated John to write his entire gospel, and this is what motivates this passage here, this very familiar passage that we would believe, that those who are hearing this would believe in Jesus. And that in believing would have life, eternal life, life everlasting that starts now and goes on for eternity. So I want to look at that belief. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? Actually, before I do that, is there a, do we have the summary of the verse? This is a really wonderful summary of sort of the extent of, of this, the power of this verse, John 3.16, that may help cast it in a new light for us. That God, the greatest subject ever, so much to the greatest extent ever, loved the greatest affection ever, the entire world and all that were in them, the greatest object and everyone that filled it. That he gave his one and only son, which was the greatest gift ever, so that every single individual, whoever, the great, presented with the greatest opportunity ever, that they are simply entrust, or who, who is simply entrusting oneself to him, offering the greatest commitment ever, would never be destroyed, the greatest rescue ever, but instead would have, even now, a deep and lasting life, the greatest promise ever. This is the good news. 
So belief. If John's heart in writing the whole gospel, in telling the stories that he told of Jesus, is to motivate us to believe in Jesus, what does that mean, to believe in Jesus? Well, I think it's got to mean more than just believing things about him, right? It's not just facts about Jesus. Uh, lots of people believe things about Jesus, that he was undeniably a significant historical figure. Certainly it includes that, but that's, it's got to be bigger than that, I think. It's even more than simply to believe what Jesus says and teaches, right? Many people look to Jesus as an example to follow, as a, as a really good moral teacher, which he is. He is that. But it's more than that. It's personal. It means that we entrust ourselves to him, that our, our trust, that our confidence is in Jesus, And in this context, we're talking about life and death. We're talking when everything is on the line, we put the weight of our life in trusting that Jesus is who he says he is and that he has the power to do the things that he says he can do, such as conquering sin and death and offering life. Uh, Our actions betray where our trust lies, right? Um, For example, if you give someone a task to do, but you're constantly looking over their shoulder, constantly badgering them about that, that reveals something about your trust in their ability to actually accomplish the task that you've given them. And belief in Jesus, I think, is similar. This this trust um, in the sense that our actions, the way that we live our lives, will, will reveal whether or not our belief, our trust, is in Jesus. And for each of us, there are areas of our lives where where we need to be challenged more to to exhibit belief in Christ more and more in these areas, right? Um, Areas where we have to ask ourselves, okay, are we trusting Jesus truly here? Uh, It's one thing to say that and sing it on a Sunday morning, um, but when I'm uh, looking through my finances and doing the budget for the month, when I'm in a difficult meeting at work, right, when I'm parenting, When I'm speaking, even my speech, does my speech reflect my belief in Jesus, that he is Lord? We have a group that meets here uh, every Sunday morning called Full Life Discipleship. And our community groups uh, work towards a similar end, too, which is to say that there are areas of our lives that, that need further digging up, further the, the soil needs to be tilled more so that the the oxygen of the life of Jesus can, can kind of get into the cracks even more. So that as we go through every part of our day, every part of our week, this life of Jesus, this eternal life, is being lived out, is being exemplified in every part of our lives. And one of the ways that, uh, that John describes that here, what this life of trust in Christ looks like, is, uh, is it's, we are people who live in the light. John loves using light and darkness imagery. It's throughout his whole gospel. Uh, and he describes here the two responses to the light coming into the world. One is people are drawn to the light and they're, um, they're embraced by Christ and their, their deeds are exposed, but, but in a way that brings grace and love, and, and hope. And, and then there's another way of responding, which is to, to run and hide, 
to seek the shadows. And I think that that kind of hiding is very understandable. Right? All of us, at some level, understand that there are motives, that there are deeds, that there are internal workings in us that we would rather not have exposed to the world. <laughs> uh, I think all of us can, can appreciate the, the human tendency towards hiding, towards seeking out the shadows. And John describes that um, as a very human response. But it's not one that leads to life. And, and there's an interesting turn of phrase at the end of this passage that, that kind of sets up, sets in contrast, in sharp relief, those that are believing in Jesus and moving towards the light, uh, and, and those that are not and who are, who are seeking out the, the places to hide. Right? So we get that, that people who are, are doing evil deeds, uh, and we have to raise our hands and include ourselves in that category of people, that we are fearful of coming into the light for fear that our deeds will be exposed. But then the last verse, but whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in God or in the sight of God. This last little phrase gets translated in a variety of different ways in different translations, but it has this connotation that it's not just our deeds that get exposed when we come into the light, but it's actually also God's deeds, the things that God has done. His actions on our behalf also get exposed as we come into the light. The good news, the good news of the gospel is this, that once we step into the all-revealing light of God, yes, our, our sins are exposed, but what shines even brighter is God's grace. Paul talks a lot about uh, uh, God's power being made perfect in his weakness. And I think that has something to do with this here. That when we, when we come into the light and allow God to it, basically just reveal things as they are, right? Like we're just, it's, fine, it's final honesty time. Uh, what also gets revealed is that God forgives us. That God's grace is greater than any sin that we have. And so... One of the ways that we seek to live in the light as a church, uh, it's, a, it's a practice that we've received, that the church has been doing for, for hundreds of years, is the practice of confession. Right? This is something that in, in every service here, at some point, we seek to have a moment of confession. It's, a, it's something that we practice together so that as we live our lives in the world, it's something that we can do that is reflective of living in the light. This is, it's to confess the things that we would otherwise probably like to keep hidden. There's power in confession. And in confession, sometimes we think of it primarily in terms of uh, more hidden sins, um, you know, pride or lust or things like that. And there is such great transformative value in confessing those sins uh, to God in prayer, but also to a trusted brother or sister. But there are other areas where we might not always think of confession um, that I think have a tremendous, a, a tremendous power to bring the transforming grace of Christ into, into these nooks and crannies of our lives where we might otherwise remain hidden and, and, and kind of keep Christ out. Two that came to my mind are the workplace um, and family. Uh, 
the workplace is a place where if you confess something, a place where you've messed up, uh, there are real consequences there, <laughs> or there may be real consequences there. So it's, it's not always a light thing to, to admit when you have done something wrong in the workplace. But the power and the possibility of transformation, of transforming your workplace into a place of, of honesty where, the, where grace can reign, um, I think, uh, I think the, the potential if we are people who are practicing confession, not just internally or not just at church, but also in the workplace, admitting when we've done wrong, I think the potential for transforming our workplace cultures uh, is, is amazing. It's powerful. And in parenting, I think that sometimes, uh, this is true for me, I'm just imagining it's also true for others, um, and not just in parenting, but, but with, with spouses, with other relationships, I feel like we're very hesitant to, uh, to confess when we've been wrong. And as a parent, I think sometimes it's because we want the perception of ultimate authority. And if I, if I have to admit that I was wrong in a discipline that I did or a, you know, something that I did as a parent, somehow we think that it, it, that's going to rob us of the authority we have as parents to get our kids to do what we want them to do. But I've tried to practice with my own kids admitting when I, uh, when I was too harsh in a response. Or, or when I was wrong. And I'm trusting, A, that that's good for me. <laughs> that that's going to shape me. That's going to help me be someone that continues to live more in the light. But also, that that's going to shape my kids. That they're going to understand that, A, dad's not perfect. Because that's accurate. That's also living in the light. Uh, and that that is going to build in them a, a willingness uh, to, to also confess their own, um, their own mistakes and failures and sins. That's going to be something they'll be more willing to do. And I, I remember a conversation that my dad and I had when I was in college and was back home on a Christmas break. And this was in that transition period when you're, kind of, you're moving from this parent-child relationship with your, with your parents to more of a peer relationship. And that, that happens at different times for different families. But college was definitely a season where that happened for me. And... Um, and my dad, as we were walking back from my grandma's house, he confessed to me his own insecurity in, in being a father, that he, when he, was first, when he first had me, uh, that he didn't know what he was doing. And he did not have a great example necessarily in his own dad. And, um, and so a lot, of, uh, a lot of his initial moves as a father were maybe knee-jerk reactions or, or best guesses. And, and his... His confession of that to me uh, opened up a relationship that would not have been possible without that kind of openness and that kind of living in the light, right? His confession brought a transformative uh, element to our relationship. It changed the way that we interacted. It brought in grace, is what it did, into our relationship. I hope for that kind of relationship with my kids. I hope for that kind of relationship with my spouse. The church has uh, sometimes been guilty of acting a little more like Roland Stewart when it comes to this verse, right? Throwing it up on a sign and then beating people over the head with it. Completely missing that this message of God's love is accompanied by the means of love in Christ that does not force, that does not coerce, 
but gently offers a free gift. And so it kind of puts the question to us, how do we respond to that? What's our response to this free offering of life? It's clear what John is intending in this passage and in this gospel. Believe. Believe in Jesus. Live in the light. But we can't force people to do that. And we ourselves can't be forced to do that. But there is an invitation to believe and to let this belief work its way into every corner of our life and to be the kind of people that are living in the light so that as we confess in every area of our life, uh, we, we, we get to witness this transforming grace come in to change us, to change the nature of our relationships at home, at work, in our neighborhoods. And as we believe in Jesus, as that belief works its way into our life, and as we're living in the light so that his grace and mercy are highlighted, so that they shine brighter and brighter in our lives, as we rub shoulders with the world, they're going to see that. They're going to taste and see that. And who knows? Who knows how the Spirit will use that to bring people to choose also to then believe? to see God's love for them, his great love for the whole world through us as those that are following in the footsteps of Christ. Maybe the invitation to you this morning is to believe for the first time. That's thrilling. Take that step, that leap. Maybe there's an area in your life, maybe you've been, you would say, I I believe in Christ, I believed in Christ my whole life, but... Inevitably, there's some area where the Spirit is nudging him and saying, take this area into the light and just see, just see if the transforming power of grace doesn't change you and change this area. As we come to the table this morning, I'm going to leave a little space for us to confess, for us to listen, to confess to God, to bring to God our lives and to let the light of his love just pour over area, every area of our life. Trusting that God does that not to condemn us, right? Not to just point out all the areas of our failure and, you know, laugh. But to expose them and then to say, look what, look what I've done in Christ. I've come, I've, I've come in love, not to condemn, but to change you, to forgive you, to transform you. So let's pray together as we come to the table.